Welcome to GenCast, a sponsored podcast series brought to you by Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm your host, Jeff Bukaliskis. Thanks for joining this GenCast today. We have a couple of panelists here, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Gentlemen, if you could tell the Gen audience a little bit more about yourself, that'd be great. So my name is Carlos Lesage, and I'm working for Horizon Discovery, a CRO located in Cambridge, United Kingdom. I've been working for Horizon Discovery now for around about five years, mainly in the field of functional genomic screening and CRISPR-Cas9 related screening. Three and a half years as a senior scientist and in the last year and a half moved on as a manager within the same department. And my name is James Goldmeyer. I also work for Horizon. Currently as a product manager responsible for all of our functional genomic screening services, as well as all of our catalog libraries. Been with the company for about two and a half years since they acquired a division I was with coming out of GE Healthcare that I was with for a very long time prior to that. But it's been a fun experience and it's certainly one where the capabilities and the tools that we now have are superbly interesting and get to work with fantastic folks like Carlos and the rest of his team. Thanks, gentlemen, and welcome to GenCast. I think the best place to start is I have a list of questions, but maybe you could provide for the Gen audience some background about what it is we're going to be discussing today. A major challenge in cancer research is to understand and to define the gene function in both normal cells and how changes in the gene output can potentially lead to cancer and progress to cancer. Multiple genetic and epigenetic changes actually drive tumor progression to the point where Tumors, they grow at the primary site and then they metastasize and populate distant areas of the body. And things that reside in a tumor that restrains the immune system and potential development towards resistance due to those genetic changes to therapies. And functional genomic screening, functional genomics in general, has become quite a core tool for studying all sorts of genetic changes potentially associated with the tumor progression steps, both in in vitro as well as in vivo. And recently, CRISPR screens have become like the bedrock, so to say, of functional genomic screens, owing to the robust delivery of data that is immediately useful and actionable. And especially when it comes to the use of animal models in the research, this has now increased our understanding of the biology in more general sense, as well as in disease prediction and initiation, but also progression of the disease in particular. So in this podcast, we will explore the latest developments in the use of CRISPR screens, CRISPR-Cas9 screens in mice and in the vivo setting for modeling cancer and other human diseases and how these models can actually help us to gain insights in disease progression and link to that opportunities for developing potent therapeutics. Yeah, I think another way to kind of summarize that a little bit too is really one of the big questions that we often get from potential clients is questions around how can they take their in vitro applications and move to an in vivo model and why they might want to do that. And so we thought we might spend some time really just discussing what that aspect of functional genomic screening looks like to really try to give an idea of what people should consider when they're thinking about that move and why do it in the first place. Because there is obviously a lot of very valuable data that can come out of an in vivo study. It's also a little bit of a scary topic to some people. And so we thought we might try to help demystify it a little bit. Excellent. So at Jenna, our audience is pretty interested in genomic screening, especially in relation to CRISPR. So I think they'll be very interested to hear your guys' take on the biggest challenges you see in the area. Yeah, when it comes to challenges, combining in vivo experimentation with CRISPR screenings, I think one of the challenges is the scale of the research that can be conducted. So basically, the number of genes you want to interrogate 
which obviously depends on the cell number that is required to support the experiments. In in vitro screens, at least ideally, each guide RNA in a CRISPR-Cas9 screen should be represented at least a few hundred times so that we can measure the changes in the cell proliferation in time, for instance, in relation to things like a drug pressure. However, a higher representation is definitely desirable in in vivo experiments and maybe even up to a few thousand times per individual guide RNA, per individual gene editing which is important because in vivo experiments are a bit more fluctuating when it comes to guide RNA representation in growing tumors in animal models. So the tumor cell population basically and the size of it limits the number of genes that can be queried via pooled gene editing technology. Yeah, and I think one of the other aspects of that to consider as well is, is the variation that you can see. When you're dealing with an in vivo model versus an in vitro system, there are just more variables to deal with, even with the strains of mice that we might use. And so it is valuable, and that's part of where the value of the in vivo work comes from, is to try to get to that more realistic view of tumor activity. But there is just innate variation, and therefore, Carlos mentioned, you need significantly higher representation in an in vivo experiment than an in vitro to kind of balance the signal from the noise and to separate it better. Whereas with an in vitro experiment, you might do more genes at smaller representation. With in vivo, the real issue is to do fewer genes at a much higher representation to get more rich data around those genes. Also, there are some other things to consider here, which are more along the lines of cost implicated in running these kind of experiments. In vivo experiments are generally not very cheap, and depending on the experimental size and the model of interest, they could be quite costly. Straightforward experiments, for instance, where cells are manipulated ex vivo, CRISPR-Cas9 editing happens ex vivo, and those cells are then implanted into new mice, atymic mice, that cost around about $500, for instance, per mouse. So when you then consider different conditions to test and factoring in multiple replicates per experiment, because you definitely need multiple replicates to make sure you catch any variations that occur throughout the screening, you can imagine that it starts to add up quite quickly. And then, of course, because these are not just in vivo experiments where we do a drug-based treatment, these are linked to CRISPR-Cas9. So ideally, we want to understand guide RNA abundance in populations at the end of the experiment. So also, next-generation sequencing costs would be included in the total package. So on the flip side of the challenges coin, I think one of the things we always like to find out about and know about is what do you see as the biggest opportunities in the field? I mean, I think the single biggest opportunity is to really study tumors in a more native context, to really be able to understand aspects around their formation, tumor stem cells, treatments, and really get a very strong sense for better biology. Because one of the big aspects of tumors is that they are and tend to be somewhat heterogeneous. A tumor could be a very mixed population of cells. And so the closer you can get to understanding, for lack of a better phrase, the truth of the issue, the better the treatments can become and the more effective they can become, which is obviously a big goal of the people who tend to work in this space. Yeah, definitely. And in addition to that, one going a little bit more technical, when it is about CRISPR, we have actually now kind of an unprecedented tool to make the mutations and mimic mutations that are actually occurring in patients that have cancer. So previously, we would make models around random mutagenesis with chemicals, transposons, and even manipulate gene output via loss of function tools like RNA interference or maybe overexpressing some cDNA libraries, which is relatively artificial to some extent. 
each of these technologies obviously delivered some great data and gave us a better understanding of the multiple steps involved in the tumor genesis from growing a tumor all the way to metastasis, etc. However, with CRISPR-Cas9, we can really produce very particular point mutations and substitutions and even amplifications and chromosomal rearrangements, which are all changes that are extremely close, really mimicking the genetic changes that occur in human cancer. I think an aspect to add on that is that the previous technologies were and are very applicable to this type of research. But I think it's one where with the gene editing ability, we have a technology that is a little bit easier to move from in vitro to in vivo in terms of relevance of the biology and the data you seek. Versus if we thought about some of the very difficulties of the mechanics of moving something like an siRNA from an in vitro model to an in vivo model, where you have issues around delivery and localized concentration and different effects, the CRISPR system lends itself to that ease of transition being much better so that you can move more rapidly from an in vitro system to an in vivo system. So I think it's a follow-up or an add-on to that. We talk about opportunities, but what do you see as the biggest innovations in the field that sort of help the process overall? I think it's a bit linked to the previous question to some extent, because with CRISPR-Cas9 editing technology now, we can really produce some precise mutations to really actively mimic what is actually happening in patients and query those I think big innovations in this field are the current use of strategies to understand subpopulations within a growing tumor rather than just taking a chunk of the tumor at the end of the experiment and understanding what differences, for instance, in guide RNA abundance are. We now have ways where we can actually link a genetic perturbation not only to the growth of the cells or the effect towards the growth of the cells, but also see how Within the tumor, there are particular subpopulations that are growing out faster or less fast as the tumor develops. So basically an increase in the resolution of the tumor material within the screen. One of the other ones is the ability to multiplex. The CRISPR system, because of the nature of it and the way it targets different aspects of the genome, does that very specifically. We have formats and technologies where we can do multiplex perturbations of cells to where we might knock out or otherwise modify, modulate multiple genes at once, which might more closely mimic, again, some of those tumor models where a patient might have multiple mutations. And so now you're able to much better recapitulate what's going on in a clinical setting, but obviously do it in a more controlled environment at an experimental level where you can really look at how do I recapitulate the clinical setting closely so that I can most effectively test treatment options or biological effects around how that tumor is behaving in a much more native context than previously. So thinking about the field as a much broader sense, much larger sense, in the next few years, where do you see the market developing? So we know that CRISPR-Cas9 reagents are extremely efficient in how we apply them to generate genetic edits exactly where we want them to be. I think there's still a challenge in using the same reagents to make a knock-in, for instance, to change a gene back to its original state. For instance, it had incurred a mutation and could be the driving cause for tumor agenesis, or at least involved in this process. So reversing that could be a potential way to actually help reverse the cancer as well in a simplistic way. crispr Cas9 can be used to cut particular genes of interest, and if a repair template is provided, the gene can then be repaired according to what you want it to look like. So you can revert a mutation in that sense. 
However, this is still a relatively inefficient process, which is mainly due to the multitude of components that have to be delivered to the cells together with this template, as well as the fact that the cells have to be in a certain phase of the cell cycle to actually you know, engage homologous recombination, which is the process of repairing the gene according to the template that you provide. So it's inherently less efficient. But having said that, there are alternatives to the CRISPR-Cas9 editing tools as we know them, the knockout tools. There's also activation and CRISPR interference. But recently, there's also a tool that is based more on base editing technology that's now coming up. And those may actually become more crucial for creating or restoring point mutations with very high specificity. And that can definitely be applied in mouse models. Yeah, and I think the other big change that's coming along with you know, base editing is something that's still, you know, certainly in its infancy in terms of applications. Another technology that's a little farther along are some of the aspects around, you know, single cell sequencing or use of things like PerturbSeq and CropSeq that allow us to really look at the population of the tumor or a population of a cells. And so we get a much better sense of what's going on, not just at the population level of a group of cells, but how each individual cell is reacting to the environment and the stimulus, which obviously gives a brand new layer to the data in terms of how does treatment get developed? How do we understand the cellular behaviors and really just adds a tremendous amount of value to our understanding, you know, is an area where I think there will be tremendous growth and development over the next couple of years, especially in this particular space. So I think to sort of help get a little bit more granular now, kind of focus in on where do you see some of the major changes in the market happening right now? I think one of the things on the uprise is the complexity of the studies that are being conducted. This is definitely increasing. So we're getting more resolution, as I said previously, on screening and screening outcome. We know that tumorigenesis, as James mentioned earlier, is a multi-gene mutation process. And with functional genomics, until quite recently, we were only able to really study the perturbation of a single gene with CRISPR and then measure the phenotypic consequence of that knockout or that mutation. So scaling that up to include a large pool of gene editing reagents was then possible to study a large group of genes and their function. But quite recently, there are studies that came out that describe the perturbation of multiple genes per cell, which has recently been applied in a more systematic approach. So we basically introduce two independent gene modifications in a single cell and then query what the effect is of those two mutations in addition to having one mutation or the other mutation in different cells. So this can be achieved basically by random cloning of two guides targeting these different genes to produce this dual guide constructed library or by designing a more programmed library where the combinations can be predetermined ahead of the cloning. And basically having these kind of libraries, it can help to reduce the size of the library as well so that you can actually query more genes again, because you're doing two perturbations in a single cell rather than one. So you can basically scale up the number of genes you want to query in these kind of approaches. I think the other big change that's dawning is that there's a shift in the market in pharmaceutical development and therapeutic development of shifting towards or putting resources on rarer diseases or diseases that have no treatment available or taking drugs that have been orphaned and figuring out how to repurpose them. Leveraging gene editing in an in vivo setting really allows for 
creation of systems that are readily amenable for those types of work models and really opens up opportunity for development into spaces that are either underserved or not even touched right now for therapeutic development. You know, there's obviously lots of emphasis on mainline cancers, neurodegenerative diseases, things of that nature. But there are other aspects, you know, particularly rare genetic diseases that have been much harder to address, mostly around separative treatments rather than curative treatments. And leveraging of these models really enables opportunity in those areas. In addition to James' point, which is a really good one, there's also an increase now in getting the field of immunology involved in the in vivo setting as well, as it plays such an intricate part in actually defining the tumor and how the tumor may or may not respond or may or may not develop resistance towards therapeutic treatments. So I think you guys touched on a really interesting point, something that we address a lot at Gen, and that's sort of these in vivo approaches, especially with respect to CRISPR editing and so forth. So I guess my next question is, what types of experimental questions do you think are best addressed with in vivo approaches? That's an excellent question. So mainly research that aims at understanding the biology in a more physiologically relevant environment. So as James pointed out earlier, in vitro experiments are a bit more you know, restricted to having the cells in a slightly unnatural environment. It's basically a clone that has been adapted to grow on tissue culture plastic. And we manipulate these cells in a particular way in the labs where if they're an adherent cell line, you have to use reagents like trypsin to detach the cells in order to reseed them in fresh flasks so they can keep on growing and growing without dying or crashing for all these kind of experiments. When comparing that to an in vivo setting, that's obviously completely different because here we're introducing potentially similar cells in an environment that is very natural to where the cells normally would be, especially when thinking of something like tumor models that are more like patient-derived kind of tumor chunks or, or tumors. When taken from a patient to investigate in an in vivo setting, those chunks would readily go into the mouse. And as such, you would have like a full tumor microenvironment that is present to support this tumor almost as natural as it is happening in the patient. So to use that kind of a model rather than a 2D model where cells are stuck to plastic, which is an important model for, let's say, more basic type research to understand new drugs initially, you know, to get your head around what is really happening. Another level is really the in vivo setting where you basically really challenge, for instance, drugs to work in an environment that is very different. There's different sorts of cells that can manipulate these drugs or can challenge the cells or will the cells be able to reach the tumor cells? Will the treatment really work in a much more physiologically relevant environment? The other aspect of that is there's some very practical places where in vivo you know, might make more sense. You have aspects around toxicology studies, efficacy studies, dosing requirements. You can do the work in vitro and say, okay, how did those cells behave in that environment? You know, but as Carlos alluded to, that's not the same as what's going on in a living body. There's many other cells surrounding disease cells. There's interaction of the immune system. And therefore, for lots of reasons, anytime during a therapeutic development, part of the requirement is those toxicology aspects and just very basic chemistry that has to be done in vivo to really get an understanding of what's going to happen when we take this compound and provide it to a patient. So those are other aspects that are really critical where in vivo is a preferred method of experimentation. 
So guys, based on that, then what would you say some of the major considerations are for approaching in vivo experiments? And in the same sense, what are the limitations to the model? That's a great question. Academics a few years back have conducted a genome-wide pooled CRISPR screen in an in vivo setting, which is quite a grand experiment to conduct and was not considered to be very feasible in terms of the outcome. But what they have found is really some fantastic data to understand how to set up in vivo experiments. So they basically had a model that introduced Cas9 CRISPR reagents in an ex vivo setting, a whole genome library, knockout library, and then implanted these cells into the flanks of immunocompromised mice and allowed those cells to grow as tumors. And eventually, you know, their main goal was to find cells that would metastasize to the lungs of the animal. But what they did actually throughout this process at each stage, the early tumor stage, the late tumor stage, and even uh, metastasized tumor material, they took samples and they measured what actually happened to the abundance and the diversity of the guide RNAs in these populations. And what they found was quite interestingly, in terms of the library dynamics, was quite a strong reduction in guide RNA presence already starting from early stage primary tumors, two weeks into the implantation all the way till uh, late stage big tumors, which is around six weeks. And that continued in the metastasized tumors. Basically, guide RNA detection went down as low as 50%, all the way down to less than 1% in the metastasized tumors, which is in the metastasis, it's fine because this cell line is not the cell line that should metastasize. So that's along the expectations that we would have. But when it comes to growing an early tumor to a late large tumor, there's quite a significant attrition that was monitored in guide RNA presence between the early primary site tumor and the late stage primary tumor. And that poses some questions with reductions in this library representation. You could expect some random loss of guides from the library as a result and potentially an avenue towards more noisier data sets, which are a bit more difficult to interpret. So this is an important consideration to take on board. And this is kind of a hallmark study in that sense, where approaching this, there's a few things that we definitely do differently, which is reduce the overall guide RNA library size to make sure that we hit a good amount of genes. But for instance, not genome-wide, not initially, definitely not in one or a few mice because that's just way too big. And another consideration is to really make sure that we have a very high level of guide RNA representation for each of the individual guides. So you can actually catch stochastic loss of guides throughout in time while the tumor is progressing, just to make sure that we still end up with a library of guide RNAs from where we can easily make conclusions as to what has phenotypically changed in time based on the drug treatment or based on certain genetic backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, so if I sort of summarize, you know, some of those aspects as well, consideration has to be given to the size and the complexity of the library, you know, whatever the screen might be. We have to consider the size of the study. As Carlos mentioned, in vivo experiments are not inexpensive by any stretch of the imagination. And there are also considerations around animal welfare that have to be taken into account So really, the study has to be well thought through and designed around what is the sort of minimum experiment that will give the maximum amount of usable data to control those aspects around cost and animal welfare to make sure that everything is done properly. What's the biology being studied? Is it something that is necessary to take in vivo versus in vitro? And if it is in vivo, again, what's the right way to go about that? You also have aspects around not just the library itself, but things like dosing regimens 
if you're doing a drug efficacy study on perhaps tumor formation, what is the dosing model that you're going to run? Does it make sense? Because you can do a very broad range of doses, but you know, what are the intervals? Are you doing tenfold or threefold or fivefold dilution series to figure out what all of that looks like? Yeah, and I think in addition to the points that you're making, James, which are really good points, also to consider the tumor material itself. So, for instance, the use of saline-derived xenografts, CDX is quite popular in in vivo experiments. However, that comes with caveats like do those cell lines, do they, the mice, do they take those cell lines very well when implanted? Do they start growing really well? Is there a tumor rejection involved in, in these experiments? So another requirement for setting these up, if there's no prior knowledge to that, is to have these kind of take rate experiments included in the study to make sure that the cell lines that are being studied are being queried in an in vivo setting are actually well accepted by the mice and are growing well in the mice. So you can study your drug of interest or your genetic mutation, background mutation of interest. And I think circling back to the earlier point that I was making about the complexity of the library and how tumor cells have the potential, especially in vivo setting, to lose part of the library as the tumors continue to grow further and further, we would definitely also think along the lines of performing barcode type experiments. So it's basically similar to the guide RNAs, but we're not really knocking any genes out or not really manipulating the cells at all. So this is just a short, unique sequence that is introduced into each of the tumor cells and then basically measure the abundance and differences occurring within those individual barcodes as the tumors progress in time. So that gives you an idea of how the cells are, for instance, if they're drifting or not, if there's a particular selection within that population that could skew potential screening later on when conducting the actual CRISPR screen. So it's basically a way to help set up the best window for conducting a CRISPR screen in an in vivo setting. Yeah, and and Carlos, that actually brings up another good point that we haven't talked about yet, which is controls. You know, both within the library itself of ensuring that when you're manipulating the cells that you have the right number of control sequences so that you can compare the different tumors back to each other, but also just the control mice that you need or rats or, you know, whatever the model is, which obviously, again, adds to the size of the experiment, but is a major consideration of it's not just the animals that are going to be manipulated, but it's also those animals that will serve as the baseline that are critically important to the design aspects as well. So gentlemen, I have one final question, and I think that anyone listening to this can obviously tell that you two are experts in this space. So I think my last question is pretty apropos, and we'd like to know, what advice would you give to anyone who's going to sort of tackle an in vivo approach to a screen? It's an excellent question. I think first and foremost, you have to think well about the biological question that you want to ask, because there's definitely a big difference when thinking of conducting a CRISPR-Cas9 screen in a in vitro setting versus an in vivo setting. So you would have to have an idea of what type of experiment you want to do, what is your interest and what do you want to address. Then this would come potentially with a particular model, for instance, a mouse model, and that could be suitable for CRISPR screening. I would definitely suggest an approach where you would, you know, along the lines of what we mentioned previously, that you would consider testing multiple aspects of that model. If not a lot is known about the model, then things like tumor take rate tests, 
but also testing barcode abundance and changes therein. All these kind of things are really important to help set the experiment and make it an appropriate experiment where you know this is the number of mice I would need to conduct it properly. These are the library size limits that we have to deal with because of the tumor model, the mouse model chosen. And this is the time frame in which we have a really good window to be able to capture differences that are occurring in the guide RNA abundance based on a potential phenotypic reaction towards a drug treatment. I think, Carlos, you hit on some fantastic points. The number one piece I would always leave somebody is, is to always ask the question, what is it you're really trying to achieve? What is the experimental question that you're really trying to drive at? And when you have a solid understanding of what the goal is, that really helps set all of those fundamental questions that Carlos just hit on of how do you build the experiment to make sense? to answer that question. I mean, we get lots of questions, and I think back over the years of people often come and go, how do I do an experiment? You know, or what's the best way to do this experiment? And the first question to always ask is, well, what are you trying to get done? Because then that lets us help and discuss around what the best way to actually meet that goal might be. You know, it may be that when we ask what the goal is, that in vivo isn't the right application at this particular point of the workflow but it might be relevant later. Or, you know, it really helps to understand if the question does lend itself directly to an in vivo approach to really understand what that goal is so that we can help design to get to the best outcome. That's really what I would leave people with is to really think about what the goal is and what the experimental outcome in terms of data needs to be for whatever that next experiment or decision is, and then really make sure that the experiment that's designed is designed in a way to address that specific requirement. Carlos, James, I want to thank you very much for joining me for this GenCast and providing the audience with some phenomenal information on functional genomic screening. I think this has been very helpful and very productive. Hopefully you guys can join us again on another GenCast in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to GenCast. For genetic engineering and biotechnology news, I'm Jeff Pugaliskas.